Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So today we're going to talk about Bathsheba. We've had quite a number of women that we've discussed thus far, Mary Magdalene, Jezebel, Rahab, and now we get to Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is often characterized as a woman who lured David. But I read you a lot of text and the story's not even done. I read you a lot of text, so let's try to summarize what exactly I read for you and why. So in the story, it begins with, it was spring, the time when kings go out to war. It's a time where they weren't doing it in the winter when there was a lot of strain on the military. They rested and when they had come out of their winter slumber, then they were ready to fight. And so they would go out. But the scripture tells us that David remained at Jerusalem. If spring is the time when kings go out, why is David at home in Jerusalem? So he's already set up in the story to be in a place where he really shouldn't have been. And we all know what happens when you're a place that you shouldn't have been. Sometimes bad things are going to happen. And so in this case, the story goes on to say that it was late in the afternoon and David was reclining on a couch on his roof. So in the palace, which was probably taller than the neighboring buildings that would have been raised up above the other houses in Jerusalem, he had a really high perch where he could catch the breeze. And so he was up on the roof reclining on his couch while all of his, his military was out fighting a battle. And at that point, then he gets up and he starts walking along, you know, he's kind of checking out things and he looks down and he sees there's a woman and she's naked and she's taking a bath. And right here is where sometimes you start to get a little annotated commentary that she was out here trying to lure the king. But the text is very clear. The text says that she was doing exactly what Leviticus tells her to do. She was tending to her purification bath. The Old Testament, especially the Torah, the first five books of the Bible is very clear about purity code. And purity code means that you are attentive to where bodily fluids are. The Bible is really big on keeping all your blood on the inside, keeping it all in there. And that's a great thing because that keeps you alive. However, for women, there is a time where that doesn't happen. The Bible recognizes this. And so the Bible says afterwards, you take a mikvah, this cleansing bath, and you are back in where you should be in cleanliness and the purity code. That is what Bathsheba was doing. She is doing exactly what Leviticus 15 tells her to do. Now she's doing it up on the roof, but think about it. That's where it would be done. That's where water would gather in the rain. And so that's where you would do it. And so she's doing it because other people wouldn't really be able to see her. She's not like out in the street prancing along naked. She's doing what she's supposed to be doing. Unfortunately, David sees her. And the truly unfortunate thing that the text tells us is she's very beautiful. If she hadn't been good looking, David would be like, oh gosh, okay, fine, great. But unfortunately for her, she's an attractive woman. And so the text tells us that David sent messengers to inquire about her, to ask about her. If she had been single, then David would have said, come and be one of my many wives and concubines, because can you ever get enough? Apparently not. So David is interested in her and he sends word, but the word comes back 
This woman is Bathsheba, and she is married. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She is the wife of a foreigner. Uriah is a Hittite. And so he is apparently, though, an excellent warrior. In other places in the scripture, he's proclaimed to be one of the top 30. He's like an elite fighting force. And because he's so good, I guess that's why we overlook his lineage and his, his ethnicity. We overlook that because it's very productive for King David. And so Uriah is married to Bathsheba. The text isn't very clear about whether she is an Israelite or not. She may also be a Hittite or she might be of mixed lineage. The Bible doesn't really tell us. And so here she is, she's married to a foreigner who is off at war, you know, where the king's supposed to be. And unfortunately, she has been witnessed, and when David finds out that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, he doesn't care. He sends for her, and she is brought to him, and then he sleeps with her, knowing full well that she is married. And then he sends her home, because he can't keep her, she has a husband, so he sends her home. Unfortunately for him, David isn't really good at paying attention to timing. If she was taking her purifying mikvah, then that means that she was at the height of her fertility, and she becomes pregnant. And so she sends word back to the palace, I am pregnant. And now David goes, uh-oh, that's a problem, because Uriah is not around to get Bathsheba pregnant. So we got to fix this quick. So he tells his commander, his general, Joab, he says, I need you to send me Uriah. Now remember, this isn't like you could text message somebody. You gotta write a note and send it out, and they gotta get there, and then they gotta get Uriah back. So time is ticking. <laughs> time is ticking. And so he gets Uriah back, and he's like, great, welcome home. How are things going? Great, go home and see your wife. He actually tells him to go and wash his feet. Well, this is where the Hebrew is much more salacious because in the Old Testament, instead of saying genitalia, they would say feet. <laughs> go see your wife is what he said. Go see your wife. Save me from what I've just done. Go and see your wife. But Uriah says, no, no, no. You know, I'm just, he goes down to where all the servants are sleeping and he sleeps there. He doesn't go home. And the next day, when he's told that Uriah didn't go home, David's like, well, that's not cool. So he calls, he calls Uriah back, and he goes, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, all of your commanders and your army, they're all in booths. Those are tents. You're, they're all living in tents. You know, they're sleeping out under the stars, fighting battles. It would be so wrong of me to come back home and enjoy the comforts of home when they're all suffering and struggling out in the field. It just wouldn't be right. Now, the other thing is that when the Israelites went to war, they had a process by which they purified themselves and then they swore off a women. Well, they were supposed to. Supposed to swear off a women. So he has been kind of consecrated for this, this military work and he's like, I'm not going to go and defile myself with my wife. It's not fair. It would just be absolutely cruel. And so he said, I'm not going to do that. And so David's like, fine, 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 stay here. I've got to go to plan B. Plan B is get him drunk. That's plan B. So then he's like, okay, let's eat and drink. Uriah gets drunk. David's like, great. What else is he going to do but go see his wife? Nope. He got drunk, but then he went and he slept in the same place. Now David's had it. All right, now what am I going to do? I can't get him drunk and get him to go do what he wants to do. So now I got to go to plan C. And plan C, and if you caught it, is so cruel. He writes a letter 
absolutely defining how Joab is to assist him in having Uriah killed. And then he seals it and gives it to Uriah to take to Joab. Can you imagine walking around with your death sentence in your hand? That's especially cruel. And so he gives it to Uriah, and Uriah, the dutiful guy, heads back to Joab and gives him the letter. And the letter says, I want you to figure out where the most dangerous fighting is, and I want you to put Uriah there and you know, send the forces, but then I want you to quickly withdraw the forces so that he's left and dies. I want you to sacrifice him. And maybe in David's mind, it's like, look, he wouldn't go sleep with his wife. I got him drunk. He wouldn't go sleep with his wife. Now he's got to die. Talk about going from zero to 60. Now he's got to die. And why does he have to die? Because David slept with his wife and she got pregnant. And so we get to this point now where Joab does what David says. Doesn't seem to bat an eye. King David says it. Here we go. And so it happens exactly as David dictates. They find a place in the wall. And of course, at the wall, those who are on the wall of the city have the advantage. They can shoot down. They are able to drop things like that millstone that's referenced in the, in the scripture. They are able to rain down death upon the Israelites that are gathered at the wall. And so Joab says to the messenger, who now must go report this to King David, look, if the king gets angry and he rants about all this stuff, at the end, this is what you say. Oh, and Uriah the Hittite is dead too. Because no matter how angry David is, because think about all the other people that had to die just so we could kill Uriah. We didn't just kill Uriah, we killed other people according to the text. And so Joab says, when you tell him that, he'll back off. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. David says, you know what, don't worry about it. Tell Joab, don't worry about it. The sword takes one, the sword takes another, but I do want you to press and take the city. Take the city and be encouraged. Take that city. And so, now David knows that Uriah is dead. And the text tells us that Bathsheba mourns her husband. She makes lamentation for him. She mourns him. And then when her mourning period is up, because even in scripture there's a prescribed mourning period, when her mourning period is up, David sends for her again. And this time she becomes part of his wives and concubines. She becomes officially a wife of his. And she is pregnant. And so now the story cuts where we stopped reading, but the story goes on because the story isn't done. Anybody who can do some rudimentary math was going to figure out that something was a little off here. That's a big premature baby, right? There would be something wrong there. But what happens is that God has noticed how David has abused his power. God has taken note of this. It's not hard to do. God and David have a really good relationship. God had David anointed to be king. God has blessed David repeatedly. David has repeatedly served the Lord. And so God seems to be paying attention to David. And David is in a powerful position. He is one of only three kings that will ever serve over a united Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah are united under Saul, David, and Solomon, and then never again. And so David has a very powerful position. And he is beloved. And so his word, his deeds, his actions, how he chooses to live is watched, not just by God, but by the people. The people are paying attention. This is God's anointed. Surely he is a model for us. But what you find is that David got real selfish, really selfish. And so God decides to send the prophet Nathan to David. 
Let me tell you something. If a prophet ever comes and knocks on your door, you're in trouble. I mean, when was the last time God was like, I need to send a prophet to you to let you know how bad you messed up? That's what David got. And Nathan shows up. And I always have such pity in my heart for Nathan. Can you imagine God's like, wake up, Nathan. I need you to go do a thing with David. Go, I need you to go tell David that he's messed up. And now, I hope that God gave Nathan exactly what to say. Could you imagine trying to write that sermon as you're going to the... <laughs> All right, where am I going with this one? All right, let's try, um, let's try this. Here's what Nathan says to him. He shows up to David, and of course he's received because David is a faithful Israelite. And so he's received by David, and he starts with case law. Let me tell you a story about something that has happened. Now, we kind of forget that this is something that kings do. Solomon will do a lot of case law, but David did it too. And so David is listening to this story, and Nathan says there was a very rich man. He had lots of flocks and herds. But then there was a poor man, and the poor man only had one ewe lamb, just one little lamb, and had bought this lamb and had nurtured this lamb. His children grew up with this lamb. This lamb was very precious to this man. But the rich man had guests coming. And so the rich man took the ewe lamb, slaughtered it, and served it to his guests. Which even just there just sounds horrific, doesn't it? Why would you steal this guy's lamb to feed your people? You have flocks and herds. You have plenty. This incenses David. David gets very angry. And David says, that man will die. The rich man should die. He will return fourfold the worth of the lamb that he took. And he shall die. And then in one of my favorite parts in the whole Bible, because it's there with an exclamation point, Nathan says, you are the man. You're the man. The man you're angry at, the one you want to kill, it's you. You're the man. Which takes some chutzpah to say to David. And here's the moment where you can like script it, right? What? I, I didn't know. What do you mean? She's not a lamb. She's a woman. She could have said no, right? We can go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Like, I don't know. I mean, you know, it was like a, like a nature thing. I don't know. He could have done anything. Why was she up on the roof bathing? Believers in God both Israelite, then their spiritual descendants, the Jews, and their spiritual descendants, the Christians, will argue for David and against Bathsheba. They will do this. They will take David's side. Why will they take David's side? Because they love David. A lot of our psalms that we read that they sang in worship were written by David. David was the champion who slayed Goliath. David was the king, anointed, called. David is the one who will bring the ark into Jerusalem, who has to take Jerusalem in order to bring the ark there. David is the one who will eventually bring forth Solomon, and Solomon will be one of the wisest, greatest kings ever. And because of what David wanted to do, Solomon will erect the first temple. I mean, there's a lot to love about David, but David isn't perfect. And you can't choose to villainize Bathsheba just because you love David. But how many times in our lives have we witnessed that? You know, especially if you've got somebody in your circle of friends or in your family where a relationship goes bad. Sometimes people are dating or sometimes they're married or sometimes it's like siblings or just some other familial relationship and it goes bad and you feel like you got to choose sides. Like I was friends with him first, so she's now the devil incarnate. And you see that, right? You started like, like we were all there. Like we're picking sides because we watched it all go down, right? And so what ends up happening is 
This is where human sin gets intriguing. I love him, so she's got to be evil. But notice that that's never what happens in the text. But it makes us feel better to think that she had to, like, David would never have done that otherwise. Never would have ever done that, right? Like, he was at home when he should have been out at war, up on his roof. He should have been doing something, anything but what he was doing. He had nothing to do. You know that old saying about idle hands? What are you doing, David? Ain't nothing else to do except find yourself another wife and have enough of those. God has plenty to say about that later to David. But David had lots of flocks and herds, lots of wives and lots of concubines, and he wasn't happy. He wanted more. And so he looked out and he saw her, and even after he knew that she was not available, he didn't care. He took her. And there have been plenty of commentary, like scholastic commentary, that talked about how she was responsible. She had to have been part of that. Well, let's just parse this out for a minute. If she was, in fact, an Israelite, she was not equal to or above the king. And if she was, in fact, an Israelite, her husband's boss just put the moves on her. The king of the land sent for her. What is she supposed to say? No. No, I'm not going to the king. The king has summoned me, and I'm saying no. The chances of that are slim. And then he reveals that he wants to sleep with her. Her husband's life is literally in David's hands, as we see. He could have had Uriah killed if she said no. He could have retaliated against her. There's all kinds of reasons why this story is deeply troubling and problematic. But at the end of the day, you notice that we have almost nothing from Bathsheba in the story. The only thing we have is the note that she sends in that says, I am pregnant. And notice she didn't say, you're the dad, because we all know who the dad is. He knew, I'm pregnant, we got a problem. And so David sets about trying to fix it, but not fix it by taking responsibility for it. He tries to bring Uriah home and get him to go sleep with his wife, and then we'll just try to kind of fudge the time. Then he figures, you know, okay, he won't go of his own volition. I'll get him drunk, and then surely he'll go, but he won't. And then David's like, enough of this. I'll just have him killed, and then it's done. How do you go from adultery to murder? And that's pretty extreme, but that's where David went because it was more important about hiding his sin. And when Nathan says to David, you are the man, we're talking about you, you could just hear excuses that could bubble up, including, you're a dead man, because there have been a number of kings that have said that to a prophet. You're a dead man. But what does David say? David says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. His response is immediate repentance. I'm owning it. I sinned. David owns it. And that's the heart that God loves so much. Because David, like all of us, sins. There's plenty of them in there. Not just this. These are kind of like his top two, but there's more. And he sins a lot. But every time he recognizes his sin, every time it is blatant before him, he owns it and he repents. And that's what God loves. 
God doesn't love somebody who's pretending to be perfect or is putting on the picture that they're perfect. God loves the person who perfectly repents. And that's what David does. Because what David does is horrible. You know, all in Hollywood, they're always writing stories about like the Exodus or Noah. I'm like, get to, get to Samuel, get to Kings. There's a lot of good stuff happening there, but nobody ever goes there in Hollywood. This is a better story. And yet, no. You know why? Because I think this is an uncomfortable story. I think this story makes us feel like icky. And it should. And then it's like David is going to be forgiven. And the minute that he says, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan says, now you won't die. There's going to be consequences, but now you're not going to die. Because remember, David wanted to kill the guy in the story. He's dead. No, 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 no. God's not going to kill you, but we are going to have to work through this. We're going to have to work through this. And David just couldn't stop himself. No impulse control. None. It wasn't enough that he saw her. It wasn't enough that he found out that she wasn't available. He took her. He got her pregnant. He murdered her husband. And then he had the audacity to judge somebody else for doing the same thing, guilty and worthy of the death penalty. But he repented. And that is why. God loves David's heart, doesn't love David's sin. You know, there were a lot of things David could have thrown out there. I mean, it could have been like, oh my gosh, she lured me, or like the devil was incarnate in her, and I am not responsible for that. There are a lot of things that he could have said. He could have been like, okay, fine, but like, we're both guilty equally. Like, I'll bear my part as long as you make her bear hers. But no, David never throws Bathsheba under the bus. I have sinned against the Lord, he says. And we are a people who have all sinned. Now, for a lot of us, we're like, I haven't committed adultery, and I haven't murdered the person (laughs) that was married to the person I committed adultery to, and so you feel like, whew, okay, I dodged that bullet. But your sin is as deadly for you as David's was for him. Our sin is deadly to us. It is a death sentence. But because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to die because of our sin. And we don't have to be dead forever because we were sinners. And in a little while, we're going to have the opportunity to experience something that David never got. David never got to take Holy Communion because it would take Jesus to do it. Now, here's the part you can tell where I've been hanging out with the Board of Ordained Ministry. Because one of the things that we talk about, that we're looking for, that we're listening to, is how people articulate God's grace. And in the communion table, you see all three movements of God's grace. Provenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. It is provenient, the grace that comes before. It is God pouring out grace before you even realize that you were a sinner. In fact, God's grace at this table has been here before any of us were even born. We are blessed to be at this time where not one day of our lives have we been without the communion table. It has been here. And so we can come to this table and be fed God's grace. That is provenient. But then there's the most important thing that happens in the sacraments, that pinnacle, that high moment in the movement of God's grace, justifying grace. It's the minute where God says, you are cleansed, forgiven, free. That sin that should have necessitated your death, you have received a pardon, and you are now free. That happens at the table. And then there's the really important part. There's a part that we call sanctification. And that piece, 
Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes this way, and hopefully it never goes like this, that's a bad thing. But hopefully it's kind of continuing to move us into a state of grace and perfection in God's love, that we are moving into a place where we are starting to more perfectly love as we have been loved. And that sanctifying grace is ours. Long after you finish chewing your piece of bread, long after you have metabolized the physical elements of communion, that grace stays with you. That grace is in there. And so that is working on you. Now, at my last church, I had a wonderful woman who had clearly become very Methodist, very Wesleyan in her understanding. And at one point, we were doing communion, and she came up, and I, you know, the body of Christ broken for you, and I gave it to her, and she does what everybody does, you know, go up in the aisle and go back in, and I'm giving people bread, and then all of a sudden, she's back. The body of Christ broken for you. Again? She took it. She went back. And I kept waiting. She didn't come back a third time. Didn't come back a third time. But afterwards, I waited to see, and she did talk to me. She came up to me, and she goes, um, I came up twice, and I said, yeah, I noticed. <laughs> she said, because when I started to get back there, I saw somebody, and I sinned in my heart. And she said, and I didn't want to be like that, so I came right back. You can come right back. Because of this gift, you can come right back. She got right back in the line. She was like, oh, messed that one up. Let's try again. And that is a gift that very few people realize. Because, let's face it, we are Methodists, and the most part, we only do communion on the first Sunday of the month. So for her, it could have been like, okay, I can, I can suck this up for another month, and then I'll be good. Oh, no. Once you've tasted justifying grace, once you've experienced what it is to be free and unshackled from your guilt, you don't want to let that go away. I mean, we're talking about like, what, 30 seconds? I mean, how long did it take her? And she was like, no, I don't want to be here again. I don't want to be back here. I want to be free. And because of God's grace, you can be. You can be. And that's a beautiful thing. David didn't have that. David goes into the temple. He goes into the temple and he's fasting and he's mourning and he's crying out and he's begging God that that child that was conceived in the adultery might live. Save that child. Now, the text doesn't tell us why exactly this child dies. There are plenty of kids who are conceived for far other circumstances that live. We don't know. It's also possible that, like a lot of women, her first pregnancy ends in miscarriage. I don't know. But this child doesn't live. But out of the ashes in the mourning of that loss will come their next king, Solomon. And so God can take something as horrific as what David has done and still bring forth something redemptive and fruitful and beautiful and humane. God can do that. And God does that at the table. That's why we celebrate Holy Communion. That's why it's such an important part. In fact, of all the worship videos I watched, every single one of them had to have the person seeking ordination officiate at the table. We had to see how they did it. We had to hear how they preached about it and what they taught about it because that is so important to us. I hope it's that important to you. 
I hope you realize what God is giving you here. All the things that you have done and the things that you didn't do that you should. All the things that you didn't say when you knew that God was trying to get it out of you or the things that you said that you knew God was trying to keep inside. All of the things that you have said and done and the way that you were present or the way that you weren't, all of those things can and shall be forgiven. And you will be free. And there is a lot within Christianity that changes how true that is. This morning, countless children were coming up and we're giving them this piece of bread and we're inviting them to dip it in the cup and and these kids are coming up and they're... I have no doubt they have no idea exactly what we're doing here. I have no idea if they have really any clue, but Pastor Sarah keeps giving us this bread and we keep taking it. Maybe they don't get it. But maybe one day they'll be sitting in a sacred space like this at an appointed hour and maybe one day the Holy Spirit will just slam into them and go, this is why. This is why. Because you need to know that you are loved. You need to know that you can be forgiven. You need to know that you can forgive others. I can't imagine what it was like for Bathsheba to marry the man that murdered her husband and to bear a child with him. I can't imagine. And so throughout the ages, there have been plenty of people that wanted to make Bathsheba the responsible party here. But David wouldn't let that happen. David said, I, I have sinned against the Lord. And so we will have the opportunity today to take something that David didn't have but one day he shall, because that's the promise of God. We do this now, knowing that there will come a day when Christ returns in final victory and sits upon that throne, and we will do this for all time. And you won't just get a taste of God's grace. You will feast upon it, and you will be the embodiment of God's grace. All of our sinful inclinations will be driven out of us, And we will never have to worry about that guilt, that fear, that shame ever again. But until then, we have today. We have the opportunity to experience grace as so many never have. So many. And I thank the Lord Almighty that I don't have to play Nathan and try to figure out what your sins are and that you don't have to try to figure out what mine are. God knows, God sees, God knows, and God forgives. Let us strive this day to be God-like in our forgiveness and our desire to take what God is freely giving to us. Grace, unmerited favor, forgiveness, all in the name of love. Because there were plenty who would have argued that David didn't deserve grace. I'm sure the people who loved Uriah the Hittite wanted nothing less than the fulfillment of his own words, his own proclamation of a death sentence. But God loves a repentant heart. And so David got grace. And God loves you. And when you repent, you get the same grace that Christ poured out on that cross. You get the same grace that God has been pouring out on God's people, even David, at that moment when he owned his sin.
I have sinned against the Lord. And you too can go on to do great, wonderful, loving things because God's grace is yours. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.